Hi, I'm Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today I am joined by husband and wife Samuel Adler and Emily Freeman Brown. You may know Dr. Adler as an incredible internationally renowned composer, also a recently retired composition professor at Eastman and Juilliard, um, but he also has quite the personal story and history. He was born in 1928 to a Jewish family living in Nazi Germany. Um, his father was a cantor and a composer, and they fled to America immediately after Kristallnacht. Dr. Emily Freeman Brown was the first woman to receive her Doctorate of Orchestral Conducting at the Eastman School of Music. And she also conducts all over the world and has multiple recordings available on Naxos and Opus One. Their knowledge of musical history is quite astounding, and it was really inspiring to sit down with them and hear what they think are the parallels and lessons from the 1918 pandemic and how musicians responded in the 20s to what musicians can do today and how they stay hopeful even in these difficult times. Hi. Oh, there you are. <laughs> we got it on. Hi, Julia. I'm happily retired. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think after 68 years of teaching, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for a composer, uh, the quarantine isn't so bad because uh, actually it's dangerous for the music world because you write too much, you see. <laughs> <laughs> He's so, been writing so much music, it's amazing. Wow. Are you writing more than usual? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm home. No, not traveling. So we were supposed to be in Europe and in Israel. And we had to cancel both, of course. And now Emily has two concerts in Europe in January. And we're I have keeping, a couple. And, and we're so, keeping our fingers crossed about so we, that. We hope yeah. we, we can go. How did you both come to experience or learn or discover your own connection to music and the power of, of music to be uplifting? Oh, I think it's been for both of us, not to speak for Sam, of course, but I think for both of us, it's been part of our lives since infancy. Mm -hmm. It's not something for, for me, not for me. And I don't know, maybe you have a moment where you know something. Well, I mean, you know, I grew up in a house where my father played Beethoven sonatas and Mozart sonatas on the piano every day. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and wrote really the more I know his music, uh, the more, uh, you know, spiritually uh, uplifting it is. And he was always optimistic, no matter what hit. And so early in my life, I went through this very optimistic musical period where we, he and I played, uh, I played the violin, he played, you know, we played all the Beethoven sonatas, all the Mozart sonatas, up to Bartok in those days. <laughs> I can't think of anything more uplifting. 
You know, and in my position conducting an orchestra at a university, that's my primary job. I think my the most important part of my job is to try and create a setting for opportunities for me really meaningful musical experiences for my students to help to help propel them into a musical future. Mm -hmm. I, I feel as if I came from a a similar background to Sam. There was a lot of music in my household, although I didn't have professional musicians as parents. But um, I think what we're trying to do is to create opportunities to expose as many people as possible to that part of music making that can be so, make your life so much richer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's very interesting that you asked the question and I've been thinking since you asked it about experiences. I've had wonderful experiences with children. I've written a lot of music for children. And um, about, uh, I would say a month ago, uh, the uh, conductor of the uh, Young People's Chorus of New York asked me to write a canon about our time. Okay. And 500 kids recorded it. And to hear these kids, it's a tremendous experience, you yeah. know? Uh, and uh, I've, all my life, I've written pieces for children. Uh, um, and I'll never forget going to Toronto. I have three books for beginning pianists. And in each, there are 20 exercises. And the first book is very little, an eight measure, you know, and, but kids, you know, when they're five years old, they, they, they think it's great. They take a bow, they play yeah. it, and take another bow. Well, I was in Toronto and 60 little children, one played each of the 60 little pieces. And they felt like they were playing a Beethoven sonata, you know. Yeah. You know, they didn't feel that they're playing a little piece. This, this is me. You know, yeah. I'm playing this. That's a great experience. Yeah. I hope you have that someday. Because, you know, it's, of course, great to write pieces for orchestras and for string quartets. And, and I've done that and I've had wonderful experiences. But to see something happen in children mm -hmm. is something yeah. that's very difficult to imagine. It takes you back to being a kid yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah. And to have had those experiences yeah. as a child. Yeah. Emily, are you teaching virtually or are you teaching in person? Well, it's going to be a combination. Okay. I haven't figured out and I don't think the technology exists to have conduct the orchestra virtually. Well, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this year we're we're actually starting up with strings alone and we've been given very strict limits on the number of people we can have in a room at one time. So we're actually um we can only have have the string players because of the the dangers, especially with flute players, um, 
they're, the woodwind and brass players are going to be having all their rehearsals outside in open tents, believe it or not. Oh, wow. I was on campus yesterday, yeah, yesterday, and all these tents are up all over campus because I think we're not the only area that's going to be trying to teach some outside. So then, they, yeah. they put up all these tents without sides. So okay. you just have the tent ceiling and they're all over campus. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and but orchestra string players, we don't really like to play outside because you can't ever hear it. Our instruments are too quiet, so you can't really hear and um, without a shell or something like that. So we're dividing the strings into two s smaller string orchestras and we'll be meeting simultaneously in two different rehearsal halls. You know, even the major orchestras are looking for string orchestra things meaning they they want uh arrangements of things for i just was asked to do an arrangement of the ives america variations oh string orchestra which the national symphony we hope will uh premiere on labor day okay and, and you also did that you picked up a the susa marches thing yeah, that you the, had done yeah, there, I did a, a Bagley March and the Sousa Stars and Stripes Forever for strings. Mm. And, you know, they're, because all they have is string orchestras. Right. By the way, I did an uh, arrangement of Jupiter from the planets. Uh huh. You can hear it. It's beautifully recorded on YouTube. Oh, great. I will look for that. It's, yeah, oh, they play so well. Great. It's by the classical. Uh, uh, New York classical players. That must have been fun to. Oh yeah. To, yeah. You know, it's it's fun to do because there. Are, uh, I mean, you can reduce things, not everything, but you know, uh, I mean, Schoenberg and Webern both made a living by reducing a lot of the Johann Strauss pieces. You know, in, even the overture to uh, Fledermaus. Mm -hmm. smaller groups with piano uh, because people wanted to play them. Yeah. And it was during the 20s, it was very difficult to get orchestras and yeah. to get larger groups because of the inflation and the terrible economic conditions. Mm -hmm. And they made, actually made their living by doing those arrangements. It's an arrangement uh, of Mahler Fourth Symphony with one string player on a part it's, it's just and then a redu reduced woodwind Reduce. section okay. and so it, it has piano and harmonium oh. a lot of these arrangements made 50 well more than 50 years ago now in the 20s yeah in the 20s and 30s used harmonium so as a, to add the kind of color. the effect the color of brass ensemble to it it's, it's and they're beautiful we may play that. So we'll these see. arrangements are from the 20s, sort of yeah. in yeah, response to the economic or right. impending economic crisis, I guess. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Wow. Because many orchestras, except for the very large cities, most orchestras, well, even in Vienna, there was only one orchestra instead of three, uh, and they needed, everybody wanted to play. And of course, Bala was the favorite in those days. And so somebody made an arrangement. I don't think they could make an arrangement of the seventh or the sixth or something, but they made an arrangement with, of course, the singer of the fourth. 
Yeah, that one works. It's really beautiful. It's a little, a little yeah. more lightly orchestrated. Yeah. yeah, I've also been thinking about scaling up some of my string quartets for string <laughs> orchestra. Yeah. Well, I, uh, if you want to, uh, on YouTube, the same group does a premiere of a piece that I made from a string orchestra to string, I mean, from string quartet to string orchestra. It's called Gedenkfeier. It was written for a gala in Frankfurt, mm -hmm. raised money to refurbish a destroyed old Jewish cemetery. The Nazis desecrated it and they wanted to raise money to you know, renew it and so on. And so they asked me to write this piece and the um, New York uh, classical players recorded it on YouTube. And so it was originally written for string quartet? It's the second movement of my ninth string quartet, but I enlarged it. I mean, I, it's not the same piece, but right. it, most of it is that. Did you add, uh, did you add bass? Of course, yeah. Okay, that's it's something I was wondering about. <laughs> it's for string orchestra, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you have to add a bass line to the string quartet. No, I right. think- Right, I, I think, Very important. Yeah, and if, you can't ignore the double bass. No. No. <laughs> Extremely it's important. It's too big. So have you found these, uh, so these are live streams from the, the Berlin Philharmonic that you're watching? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So have, have you, I mean, what is that experience like? Cause I've, I've watched some and, and honestly, they make me kind of sad and they make yeah, me kind I, of. I agree with you about that, but I mean, it's the next best thing, I guess. These are so well done and so well recorded and the video is perfect. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, they have the resources. Yeah. They right. do it from the hall, you know, right. it, it's in the Philharmonie and uh, uh, it's really good. Near us, the the Detroit Symphony has been doing a lot of live streaming, but all videos of their concerts. They've been doing that for some time. I, I mean, I don't personally, I don't know where they got the funding to do that in Detroit, but I think it's a big asset um, for orchestras to be doing that. And they were doing it before COVID. Yeah. Right. So now, um, now it's all in place for them as it was for the Berlin Philharmonic. And I think they're taking advantage of it. Yeah. And they're hoping in Detroit to start the season in October. Uh, as a matter of fact, I hope they do because on the first concert of the season, uh, Leonard Slatkin is doing a premiere of a new orchestra piece of mine. Oh. I'm hoping. In our state on Thursday, the governor said that the arts could open up, but they could only have 15% capacity in their performance halls. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't fund an orchestra right. or a theater company or an opera company based on 15%. We also have this problem of very strict regulations about how long you can have a certain number of people in any given room. Oh, okay. So we have, I'm lucky enough that from a logistical point of view, the room that we, re the two rooms that we'll be rehearsing in will be empty the hour before our rehearsals. Oh my goodness. Okay. So the, yeah. the air ventilation system will yeah. clean the air. And then we have a two hour time block during which we can only be in there for an hour. Okay. 
So it's it's really limiting. I mean, but we we these are things we have to do in order to keep ourselves as safe as possible. Right. And um, you know, the students will will adjust and we'll all adjust and we'll do as much as we can. They have a system that's good enough so two or three people can play a trio uh, and coordinate it. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, people are really quite creative these days. Yeah. That has been nice to see is yeah. how resilient. students are going online and doing, you know, bath suites and things like that. And yeah. The challenge, of course, is trying to figure out how to make a living out of it. That, that's, yes. That's the bad part. Yeah. Right. Very difficult. And yeah. I have to say that going back to school has been a, a an unending series of um, video training sessions. Yeah, I mean, how do you teach conducting virtually? It's hard. Tell tell them what you do. Well, this this year I'm going to be teaching conducting 101. Okay. So, what I've done is I have taken public domain recordings of the excerpts that they're supposed to learn to learn how to conduct all the te basic techniques, and and so that nobody in the class sings or plays or hums or anything so that what i what i'm doing i've i've only i'm not finished yet but what i've done is record gotten an online metronome app and i record two bars of click track from the metronome and then edit it together with the audio of the piece so that they know there are two bars and then they give the preparatory beat Normally in conducting class, the people in the class make up the ensemble that the other people conduct. Yeah, that was one of the best part. Well, for me, because you know, I was never yeah. that yeah. you know taken yeah. taken by yeah. conducting. And I, I but I enjoyed pretending to be an orchestra. Yeah, <laughs> well, so that's what you do. But now we can't play. Right. We we can't do that. You can't have you can't have social distancing and have two people sit at a piano keyboard. Right. So I, so I have all of these things online with which, and I will play them mm -hmm. and everybody in the class will practice their conducting gestures. And I just decided, you know, I know that's not what conducting is about. Conducting mm -hmm. is about the initial, how you initiate music, how you, and how people respond to you. But I decided that for the first semester, it's all, they're just, they're, they'll learn the techniques, they'll learn the gestures, and they can concentrate on that. And, right. and I will talk about, you know, breathe when you prepare the beat, you know, and all of this stuff. And then next semester, fingers crossed, they'll be right. able to do, um, they'll be able to learn what it's like to give a preparatory beat and get a response. Right, because so much of it is learning when the class can follow you or not, you know. And right, right. Yeah. Well, that's a very creative uh, response. Well, it's the <laughs> only thing I could come up with. But yeah, yeah. And so then, did you have to come up with this solution on your own, or have there been sort of um, communication among conductors and professors about what to do? 
Well, there's definitely been a lot of communication. I, I've, been, I've been working on this for some months and um, I've been in touch with my, many of my colleagues. I, but this is what I came up with. I see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what, can you share with me kind of what it was like right at the beginning of the pandemic for both of you and kind of how you adapted and did it affect your creativity at all? Oh well, I, I I can I can only answer uh, in the negative. That yeah. is, it has not uh, really affected me personally because of several reasons. One, I don't do much traveling anymore. Uh, it has affected performances. That's yeah. the only. That's a wow. real real problem because so many of my pieces were scheduled and had to be canceled that's that has hit hard at the beginning of the pandemic and then of course i feel that um the the lack of commitment to uh doing something about it nationally uh makes me personally very sad and very worried yeah i mean that it's going that's lasting over and over again and people warning people and the whole idea of uh, um, wearing a mask is now a political statement how stupid can you get yeah yeah and uh and we see it here i yeah. mean now i would say that most stores like grocery stores and so on put out a sign saying you can't enter without a mask still people do it and trying to make a statement about freedom well, of course, you have a freedom to die. Right. Right. That's what worries me. I mean, that's, yeah. Um, personally, it doesn't affect me. It hasn't yet. I'm, I'm still well, and I hope to stay that way. But, um, you know, it's, it's worrisome that other people get sick. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I would say has been the effect. It, it's uh, it's that one has to worry uh, about one's neighbor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, you know, I I've tried to keep working, yeah. and I've enjoyed every minute of it, and I've written four people, and they've they've enjoyed it, so fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anything beyond single or duos or something right. like that very difficult yeah it's uh, almost impossible yeah what about you emily was it uh did it affect your 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 conducting process oh, your creativity quite a, quite a bit this this spring semester i was on leave okay so but after the 7th of march or whatever it was everything was canceled yeah Oh, um, I mean, everything, everything changed. And, and I, I think that it's a very difficult time for, for artists and performers and cre creators of all kinds. And I, I just hope for the best going forward. I'm trying as hard as I can to create experiences that will nurture 
the people in the orchestra in, a, in the most creative way possible and give them some hope for the future. I yeah. think, I think that's the most important, the most important thing. You have to have some empathy. Uh, in our country, you know, uh, we don't have a social network. I mean, yeah. we don't have a, we don't have a social network that says, okay, if you get sick, we have, uh, we have somebody to help you. Uh, you don't have to pay the, your last nickel for it. And also, I mean, I worry that the major orchestras in this country have closed and nobody gets paid. Right. I mean, uh, that's a, that's... this is a terrible thing. Right. You know, the New York Philharmonic just closes, you know, and I think it's the same in L.A. and yeah. Chicago and everywhere else. Uh, this is a very worrisome thing about our friends and neighbors. Right. You know, we just don't have the same uh, social. I mean, for instance, uh, if you go to Denmark, uh, uh, if the orchestra closes, the state pays the the orchestra musicians not only the the uh, health insurance yeah. but also salaries. Right. It's not. It's it's very different here. You're on your own. Yeah. It's nice to have freedom, but <laughs> it's also nice to eat. And yes, it's a problem. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and there I isn't. Mean, yeah, go ahead. So those of us who you know have either a salary or a pension or or something like that, we're uh, the lucky ones. We're the lucky ones. If and when, hopefully within let's say six, seven months, things will improve. Uh, I feel, of course, if we do have a vaccine. And if we do have, uh, you know, some kind of medical uh, ways of uh, combating this pandemic, um, I think things are going to go back uh, mm -hmm. to some kind of normalcy. And perhaps um, the idea of uh, listening to a string quartet now instead of an orchestra uh, will be a kind of uh, lifeline to uh, entrepreneurial musicians mm -hmm. uh, who can form groups as they have been doing. I mean, so many, I mean, I, for instance, knew the people in the Jack Quartet when they were students at Eastman, you know, and that kind of, uh, also in the Kronos, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but uh, these people uh, are entrepreneurial and so on. And so are a lot of musicians that are now out of work and are thinking of what can I do when this is over. Right. And yeah. I think the orchestras, like the big orchestras, LA, Chicago, and Cincinnati, uh, Boston, and New York, they're going to go back. I mean, they'll, yeah. they'll be okay eventually. Right. I think the smaller orchestras may be hurting. Yeah. I think the thing that we have to hang on to is that the not just the belief but the knowledge that music and all the arts are so vitally important to humanity that even though we are going through a, a desperately difficult time that there is an ongoing need and there may even be greater a, a greater need Mm -hmm. as we come, as we move through this period of time and, and 
I think we just have to, we have to be as innovative and creative as we can now and find the, the ways that we can find to make it through, but hold on to that belief and that knowledge of how important it is what we do. Right. And I think this is also true, very true of composers. You know, uh, I think in America, as in the whole world, we now have among the young composers, I'm not talking about uh, pop music, I'm talking about serious music. We have composers such as yourself, <clears throat> young composers who have real talent <clears throat> and who are really creative. I worry a little bit about, uh, you know, using this time to write too much timely things, you know, that mm -hmm. are true today. You know, you have to write an opera about what's happening today. That has never worked. And it works right now. Right. It, for the long run, you write something that is universal and that is coming from the inside yeah. instead of from the outside in. And this, I think, is a very important thing to remember. I'm doing a series here uh, with some of the cantors around uh -huh. uh, called Music for This Time. Okay. It, we're doing the last one tomorrow. Uh, and it's, um, it's not anything that was written for this period, but it sounds like music that gives us repose and some kind of hope for the future. Right. And uh, this is what's important. You know. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. I mean, I had those initial impulses, right? when the pandemic started, that I needed to write something about what was going on right now. And in a way, I'm still somewhat doing that with one of my pieces, but I'm not going to share publicly that that's what it's about, because it's just going to be, this is my kind of emotional world yeah. in, in this time, but I'm not going to attach it formally to this time because um, it's, it's supposed to live beyond that. And um, also I want, like, I just never like being told what I'm supposed to feel when I, when I listen to a piece of music. Well, you know, you look at the past. Yeah. And Bach's time was one of the most difficult times uh, ever. I mean, look at most of his children died of pneumonia and diseases which don't make any sense today anymore. Right. Uh, and when he was quite, I mean, when he was in his 50s, he lost two twin girls. Hmm. They were four years old. They died of pneumonia. Well, he was smitten. I mean, he was devastated. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, you know, the music he wrote speaks to us much more than if he had written about the death of his two little daughters about pneumonia, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, he wrote something that is so spiritual for us. Right. And this, it's the same thing. You can go uh, look at the 20s, such a terrifying period, or the, you know, right after the, the Great Depression, what happened. When you look at American music was really born in the Depression. Copeland came to America in, uh, back from 
France in 1928. And the stock market crashed right next year. And during his lifetime, early lifetime, he was almost starving. Mrs. Guggenheim gave him $1,000 a year so he could live under a roof. And you know, he wrote the most fantastic music, like the, very, the piano variations in those days. Well, they speak to us. You know, if he had written about uh, how terrible it was that the banks went broke, who cares, you know? Mm. But uh, you have to remember that uh, especially the music that we're writing mm -hmm. uh, is uh, much less definite about something than it is about eternity. Hmm. Yeah. We hope. <laughs> yeah, we, we try. Uh, yeah. Well, we try not to write about today because today, tomorrow is not today anymore. Hmm. It, it doesn't it doesn't last you know? right I mean look at all the the works that were written about uh, things of the period uh, Wellington's victory was the most successful piece that Beethoven ever wrote uh, you know it it's a crummy piece <laughs> you know, and I'm glad that Beethoven wrote it uh, you know <laughs> Uh, yeah. Because it, it makes me sh look at the greatest master. He also wrote a bad piece. So I can <laughs> write lots of bad pieces. Yes. <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, he, he was not averse to making money. So when Napoleon was defeated by Wellington, he wrote not only Wellington's victory, but he wrote variations on God Save the King mm -hmm. and Britannia Rules the Waves. Mm -hmm. He made a fortune. So those are, those are what I call occasional pieces. Sure, sure. And you do that, you know. Yeah. But be careful of it. Yeah. How do you think that relates when you're writing an opera and an opera about a specific topic or time well, period? That's an why, interesting why not, question. Why not use Verdi as an example? During Verdi's time, because he was in a very political situation, he was also one of the most political composers, mm -hmm. but not like Wagner. He was political in the following way. For instance, he saw the terrible things that were happening in Italy. It was not a country yet, but there was Garibaldi, and he was very much with that movement. So when he wrote an opera on uh, the terrible government, he wrote it about the 14th century. You know, so when when the uh, when the censor said, "Well, you can't do that because," he said, "What do you mean? That's history. That's not right. today." But you know, it's the same thing that's happening today. Right. But it happened also in the 14th century. So I write about the 14th century. You can't criticize it, <laughs> yeah. but it's still as valid in his time than right. it was in the 14th century. That's right. what I. So therefore, the, the opera can be that. Right, right. It doesn't have to deal with the subject of today. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, John Adams's opera about Dr. Atomic, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty good. But the subject matter is going to be old hat. 
in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's Klinghoffer. Right. Which is much more political. Right. Or Nixon in China. Right. Not, I mean, the, the music is, I mean, I'm not criticizing it. Right. I'm talking about the subject matter. Right. So you hopefully continue to lean into the human element and the relationships. Yeah, right. That's right. That's yeah. right. In that, in, in those works. Rather than, rather than events. Right. You know, because events change. Right. And uh, people in 25 years, look, uh, what, how do you feel about the epidemic of 1918? <laughs> uh, well, I, don't, was, I wasn't there. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, you can feel for the people maybe, right. but right. you certainly wouldn't write a piece about it because right. we've got another <laughs> epidemic now. Right. Do you feel that, um, you know, People keep talking about this being unprecedented times. Um, so as, as a man in his 90s, um, how do you feel about that statement? Well, Julia, I've lived through a lot of unprecedented times. Yes. Uh, I was born in Germany at the probably the worst uh, murderous kind of thing that happened in many centuries. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, and the Second World War, which killed over 60 million people. So, you know, uh, this pandemic is terrible for us living through it. But once it's passed, we have to be creative enough to inspire people to see that it doesn't happen again. Just like we have to inspire people to, to be sure the Holocaust doesn't happen again. Right. Not always to talk about it, but to see that it doesn't happen again. And this whole racist business that we're going through today is very dangerous, yeah. just as that was. Yeah, yeah. So you, you feel there is a, an analogy with what's, what's happening with Black Americans today? Different, different. Different, yeah. It's different, and I think uh, the the murder of uh, a man in Minneapolis has stirred people to really react and hopefully that will in the next election go to something right I'm not sure it will yet right but let's hope for you know well it's just think, yeah go ahead no I, I think I think we have to always be hopeful that something that occurs like a pandemic or a murder will lead to something better. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. will we be prepared? For instance, we had under the last administration, Obama put in a pandemic unit of the uh, CDC. Right. The president, president, the present president, took it away. Well, we weren't prepared because of it. Will we be prepared the next time? Right. Yeah. So do you think there potentially could be a creative flourishing then during this time? I, I think it's possible. Yes. I don't know about right now because right. I worry very much about people. Just the lack of the safety net and the ability to survive. Right. So I'm, I hope about I. You know, you can't eat based on hope, but I hope that as 
that as we move through it, we get to a really re rejuvenation of the cre of the creative creative arts. I'm trying to be optimistic. Yeah. Let's put it. Down. Me too. Yeah. It's a struggle. I think we all know that. Yeah. And we are still very much in the beginning of it. I think. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And but, I mean, but it's up to us to fight it constantly. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And we have an opportunity as creative artists to do something about it. Again, I, I don't mean to uh, uh, badger the problem, uh, but rather uh, to shine a light. Yeah. So how, how do we as, as artists do that? Create. Just, make, the just best, making things? Write the best music Create. you can. Yeah. <laughs> believe, real, believe in every note that you write. Uplifting. Every note that you pull. Every note that you pull. Right. Look, we're we're in a wonderful profession. <laughs> it's been such a joy to see you and to talk to you. Yeah. Yes, thank you both so much for taking the time. We're great so pleasure. happy. Yeah, great, great pleasure. pleasure. And we're very happy for everything that's happening for you. It's yep. just great. Thank you. And it's great to see your faces. Great to see you too. I will. Hearing Sam Adler say that he has lived through many unprecedented times really does give me hope and just reminds me that this period will pass. It It's so hard right now and we are very much in the thick of it, but it was very comforting to think about what creativity and um, change may come from this period. I was also inspired by how Dr. Adler draws strength from his own knowledge of history and thinks about his musical heroes and how they were creative, not because they were suffering, right? He's not glorifying them as suffering artists. He is recognizing that they also lived through extremely difficult periods and still managed to produce and create powerful work that lives with us today. While we can maybe look forward to a creative flourishing in response to this very difficult time, I think it's so important to remember what Emily said, which is that we really are still trying to survive and process and hold all of the uncertainty and that this creative uh, thriving that we hope will happen, we should not expect for it to happen right now and that it is going to take time. I think that was a really important perspective that she shared. So thank you to both Sam and Emily for being with me today and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again. <laughs>